Well, in God's providence, um, our, our study with Genesis here, which we've been in since the beginning of the year, it's merging with uh, Vacation Bible School and the theme of VBS this year. Both in, so we're, we're coming at the same time to the same part of Genesis. It was not planned that way. I would like to say that everything we do at Baraka is well planned, but that is not the case, and you probably can tell that. Um, but VBS, the, the theme is the incredible race, and the race is talking about the, the human race. And so the, this is from the website, the curriculum website. It says kids will be looking at, quote, the events surrounding the Tower of Babel, or Babel. We were ta- Joan and I were talking about this. I grew up, how many of you grew up hearing it pronounced Babel? Okay, the proper pronunciation is Babel, and some of you smart people knew that. But, so I'll probably say both this morning, so just give me a break. Uh, Joan said in their class, they're gonna, they, they have to, teachers have to give the kids candy every time they mispronounce it. So there's going to be a lot of rotten teeth this week, so just be warned. Um, but the, the events, the looking at the events surrounding the Tower of Babel and learning that God is calling people from every tribe and nation through His Son, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That's good. And so, so in our study of Genesis, we're also looking at the events surrounding the Tower of Babel. This Sunday and then next Sunday we'll be looking in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, again, in God's providence. Now, I haven't looked through the curriculum in detail. I looked at the summaries of the lessons and kind of a, an overview of the curriculum. I did talk with Joan just before the service because I was curious about this. And, and, it, and it's looking at the events surrounding the Tower of Babel. And they do a recap of Genesis 1 to 11. And then they look at the account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. They go back and look at the Table of Nations that we looked at and all of these ites and names that are hard to pronounce. And, and, and then they go on from there. But... Genesis chapter 9 is uh, not so surprisingly absent uh, from the curriculum, or at least from the overview. And so I'm guessing that this particular event surrounding the Tower of Babel is probably not covered. I mean, what's a VBS curriculum to do with drunk, naked Noah? Um, and so early, earlier this week, I came across a, uh, a blog post as I was reading and preparing for a message. And the title of the post is, Where's Drunk Naked Noah on the Sunday School Felt Board? I thought that's a pretty creative title. I was hooked. But he goes on. He's talking about he's been in a lot of churches and children's classrooms and looking at bulletin boards. And, and he's worked in children's ministry and looked at a lot of Sunday school curriculums and things like that over the years. And he says, you always... Uh, at least in the old days, you find the flannel graph figures of, of Noah and you'd have his sons and there'd be giraffes and elephants and tigers and, you know, all these animals and, and there would be the ark and there would be water and, of course, there's always going to be the rainbow. And, and, but there's always, a, there's always something missing. There's no flannel graph of, uh, of the tent. There's no, there's no cutout figure of a drunk, naked Noah um, for kids to, you know, put inside the tent or something like that. You know, VBS teachers, don't worry, I'm not asking you to uh, modify the curriculum or anything like that this week. Uh, I understand why that would not be at a curriculum designed for outreach. Um, but but I, I, I think it's good for us. And this, this is part of the story. And, and, and so uh, this, this needs to be, we need to, we need to understand this. And so we, we, we need to even teach our kids this, the kids in the church, that sadly stories like this, they're often scrubbed from Sunday school. And so kids and adults, we, we can be deprived of, of this message that God is communicating through stories like this. There's a comfort that's here for us in stories like this. The comfort of knowing that people do bad things. 
But the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of bad people. This is wonderful news for us. We should highlight stories that focus on the weakness of people and the powerful grace of God. And this is, this is good for us. Given the choice, I'd rather my children learn about drunk, naked Noah than animals walking into an ark two by two and silly songs go with this because this is so important for our souls. And so, well, today we, 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 we don't only have this strange little scene in Genesis 9, but we have this, again, long list of hard-to-pronounce names in Genesis 10. And so, why is all of this here? What is, what is being communicated in this? What was being communicated to those first hearers of Genesis? Those, as Israel's come out of Egypt and, 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 and in, the, in the wilderness, preparing to enter the promised land. What was it communicating to them? What is it communicating to us? And so I'm just going to, I think there's three words that sort of came to the top, uh, came to the surface as I've been wrestling with this passage this week. And the three words are this, it's stain, struggle and scattering and so stain this there's a stain of sin that survives the flood we'll come back to that the struggle there's this ongoing struggle that we saw that began in genesis three fifteen. the struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman and it's going on but god is he's faithful to preserve this line from whom will come the redeemer and then scattering, that, that, that this is rooting Israel in their, in their history as, as this backstory is given, as how they came to be and how the nations around them came to be. This is, this is our story. We're in this. Everybody's in this because everybody was wiped out after the flood except Noah and his, and his family. And so we all come from them just as we all come from Adam. And so let's look at those three words and, and we'll, we'll build from there. So first, stain. That the stain of sin, it was not washed away by the waters of the flood. Stain of sin was not washed away by the waters of the flood. And so stains can really be a pain. I mean, this is one of the most frustrating things for me is when I, I get a new t-shirt, which I like t-shirts. And so I remember we, we went to Maine a few years ago when we were on sabbatical. and I got this t-shirt that I really liked, picked it out, found it, brought it back. And, you know, you're doing something at the stove, frying bacon or something like that. And you get this grease stain right on the front. You know, I wipe my hand or something. And then and you can't get that out. Don't tell me your remedy to get out. I know, maybe there's a way to get it. I can't ever get them out. And so... But, but stains, we have carpet upstairs and, there, and, we, and we have, you get cleaned every once in a while and there are those, there are those stains and I think, man, how are you? I can't get it out, scrub on it, scrub on it, work at it. You get the cleaners, get the stuff. I mean, you go to the uh, Oryx store, the vacuum store, and they've got this little sample of carpet, you know, white carpet, and they've got a Sharpie there and you can draw on it and use their cleaning chemicals and it comes right out. I don't know how they, there's some kind of trickery to that because that stuff does not work, but... Uh, but then you bring a carpet cleaner in and they get, it's amazing the stains that, that can, can be lifted out and cleansed, but there's some that can't. Well, when I just say that there, there were stains that were scrubbed from the earth in the flood. I mean, there were the whole civilizations wiped away and, and wicked men and, and, and wicked systems were wiped out. But, but sin was that stubborn stain that, that, that could not be removed by the flood. And, and that's very evident here. So, so this is the scene. Noah and his family, they, they're coming off of the ark. They, they enter into this new world. It looks, it's so bright, the scene here at the beginning. There's this hopefulness to the scene, this fresh start, this newness of creation. It's like this first day, first warm day of spring after you've had this long, dreary, you know, 
bitterly cold winter and you step out, oh, there's life, this is good. And so the earth, it's been scrubbed of every living thing. Now it's beginning to, it's beginning to teem with new life again. And so you have this fresh, tender vegetation that's just growing everywhere and you have animals scurrying around and multiplying and, and you have men and women multiplying. And so it's this re-beginning. It's almost like the Garden of Eden all over again. Almost. And so, but you have this old Noah and, and he's a father and, and then as we see, he's now a grandfather. He has grandchildren and so full of hope for this new world, full of hope for his family and they're, and they're expanding families. And so Noah and his family, they, what do they do? They open up an amusement park and start selling tickets, tours of the ark and, you know, t-shirts and trinkets and the souvenir gift shop. No, that's not what they do. That, that, that's not what happens. I mean, if, in, in what we just read together a few minutes ago, there's, there's something incredibly disappointing and, and sort of at least anticlimactic here. We, we're, we're filled with optimism. If, we've re, if we're reading this for the first time, we're filled with optimism about what might take place. And so our hopes for the new world, though, they're quickly, quickly dashed. And our, and our, our thoughts of brighter days turn dark really fast. And so while creation was saved through the ark, sin was also stowed away in the bow of human hearts that were on the ark. And so they, it survived. Sin survived the flood. The stain couldn't be washed away. The water could scrub the planet, but it couldn't ultimately re- remove the stain of sin on the human heart. The stain of sin couldn't be washed away by a flood. It needed blood. And only the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away sins. I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is where we're going. And this is where the story is going. So let's look at this. Verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. I know that seems very simple to say that. There's, there's, uh, there's more that's communicated in that. So as the, as the ground begins to dry and the climate stabilizes after this worldwide catastrophe, Noah starts farming. So he, most of his life he's been an ark builder up to this point, and a preacher of righteousness. Now he's this farmer. Now man, he's a man of the soil. Doesn't that kind of have sort of a romantic sound to it? This man of the soil, this gardener and farmer out in the sun. It's, it's, a, it's a great image. But it's not just describing how he spent his days gardening. This is also connecting Noah directly to Adam. So in Hebrew... This is the Hebrew, and, I, and I, maybe you can go back and remember where we were in the earlier chapters of Genesis. In Hebrew, this is what it says. He's a man. He's an ish. Remember? You shall be man, ish, and the woman is what? Isha, out of man. So he says he's a man, an ish of the Adama. Adam. Adam means ground, dirt. So Noah is a, is, a, is a man of the soil, a man of the ground. We could also say he's a man of the Adam. He's a man of Adam. He's a, he's a sort of second Adam in this new world. And he, and he takes up the same agricultural calling as the first Adam. And, and so don't miss that connection. There's a lot of parallels that we're going to see between Adam and Noah here. And the text says that he, he planted a vineyard. Verse 20 again. So we know from verse 21 he's going to start making wine and from this fruit of the vineyard. And that tells us that there's a good amount of time that elapses between when they get off the ark and what we are going to read in verse 21. So probably at least a few decades have passed. Um, vineyards are not like you know, our summer gardens. Some of you who plant gardens and grow 
uh, vegetables and stuff like that. I know we, we, we struggle. We think we're being very patient when we're waiting on those seeds to grow in our summer garden, but there's not a lot of patience required in, in watching a squash plant grow or something. I mean, the yellow squash, you can, you can almost watch that stuff grow. It's so, it grows so fast. You can go out there one day and this tiny little yellow thing, and then you forget about it for a couple of days, and you come back, you know, and it's this hard, leathery, knotty, you know, giant watermelon-sized thing. Um, but that, but that's, that's now what vineyards, vineyards take years, decades to, to mature and to produce much fruit. And so the first few years you have a vineyard, you barely have enough grapes to, you know, squeeze between your fingers and have a cup of juice. And so this is, this is a long time. We drive by Banks Road all the time and there's that muscadine vineyard there. And I don't know how long that's been here. Some of you longtime Fayette County folks maybe could tell me, but it's, it was here well before we moved here, I know. I mean, there's big old thick trunks on those, on those vines. It's, it's, it's been there a long time. But so, so this vineyard's plant, it's been there long enough, and, and so he's, he's, it's producing much. He's making wine. And so this scene in Genesis 9, it's again probably a couple decades after they unload from the ark. Vineyard's established. He's got lots of grandkids now. So people are multiplying. So Noah patiently cares for this vineyard. It produces grapes, and he starts making wine with it. Now, I know maybe you, oh, wine. I don't know. I don't know, how, I don't know where you come from, what your background is. The Bible never condemns uh, making or growing grapes or making wine or drinking wine. It does condemn drunkenness repeatedly. But, in fact, wine is considered a blessing from God, Psalm 104. And so, so this, there's, this, is, this is fine. But what do we do? What do we do as sinners? We have this tendency to take God's good gifts and to misuse them and to abuse them. Things that are meant to be enjoyed and we, we uh, trample on them and use them wrongly. And Noah's exhibit A. So one night he's enjoying the fruit of his labor. Nothing wrong with that. But he drinks too much and he becomes drunk and he strips naked and passes out in his tent. I mean, that's the, 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 the language in the Hebrew, the grammar is very specific. It's not... It just happened to be naked or something like that. He stripped himself. He, he, he did this to himself. And so there are, there are some commentators who do their very best to try and get Noah off the hook here. And try to make him look better than the text does. And so clear him of any wrongdoing. So some say he was, he was inventive. He was like the first one to invent winemaking or something like that. And he didn't realize the potency of it. And so he didn't have a clue what it was going to do to him. That's crazy. There were people getting drunk before the flood uh, when it says they were eating and drinking. And when Jesus says before the flood they were eating and drinking, that wasn't Kool-Aid and milk or something like that. Um, and so that's crazy. Another, this, let me just give you a, another example of what it, one commentator said. He got drunk, but all that means is he became relaxed and went to sleep. Noah uncovered himself in the privacy of his tent, laying aside the robe of his office and his duties. It was simply a time for Sabbath relaxation. I don't think this is just Sabbath relaxation. That's not the way the text seems to indicate. He's not just relaxing a little bit. While Moses, he's not putting the emphasis on, Mo, on Noah's sin. So it's not giving us a lot of graphic, sordid details here. But the context clearly shows there's sin and there's shame. And there's disgrace. How would you explain the, the other brother's response when, when Ham goes and says, Hey, guess what? Come see our, come see our father. If, if, if there was nothing, if he was just doing some Sabbath relaxation like he always does, who cares? What's the big deal? But clearly there's, there's sin, there's shame, there's disgrace here. So what does that tell us? Here's the flood, this new world. 
And what do we see? Sin is alive and well in the new world. (laughs) The stain of sin had not been removed by the flood. It hadn't. And, 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 and so you have, again, picture Israel in the wilderness. They're hearing these words even for the first time. And, and they're looking at their world. And, they're, and they've come out of slavery in Egypt. Now it's generations of slavery in Egypt. And they're surrounded by idolatrous nations. And they have idolatry in their own hearts. And they're, they're making these golden calves while God's giving His law up on the mountain. And, 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 and so this, this wretchedness inside of them, wretchedness around them. And, 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 and so then they hear this God's good creation. Everything went wrong, but God's wiped it out. He started over. And then what happened? And here, God through Moses is giving us the story. What, what, the stain of sin's not removed. It, we're still wanting. We're still, we're still hoping. We're, we're looking for something greater than a flood, greater than an ark to really deliver us from sin. And so this is, this is, this is what this is communicating. And, and the Bible never blushes, never blushes at the sin in humanity. Um, it doesn't just paint these kind of neat sanitized portraits of people that propping folks like Noah up as, as these heroes. The Bible, is, the, the Bible is telling us one story with one hero. And that hero is King Jesus this is what everything's pointing us to. And so here's this Noah. He's, re- he's received grace and favor from God. He's a man who was righteous uh, by faith. He, he walked with God. He was blameless in his own generation, his crooked, perverse generation. He, he, he obeyed God faithfully, building this ark. And, and his first impulse when he gets off of the ark, after he's seen God's deliverance, his first impulse is what? It's to build an altar and to worship God. But But... Here, in, in the, what we also see, though, is Noah's a sinner. The stain of sin, it survived the flood. Here's this sinner passed out, drunk and naked in his tent. He's a righteous man doing unrighteous things. And he's in good company in Scripture. And he's in good company in this room, isn't he? I mean, we're saints and sin. If we're in Christ, we are saints, we are righteous before God, and yet we're still, we are sinners. I mean, Martin Luther had, had this Latin expression that would be, he used often through, through the Reformation, simul justus et peccator. It's another name I had to work on, another expression I had to work on pronouncing this week. Simul justus et peccator, simultaneously saint and sinner. Simultaneously uh, justified, righteous, and wretched. This is who we are in, in Christ as believers and on this side of eternity. And so even as Christians, when we're born again, it's not that we lose our ability to sin. That we don't lose interest in things that are wrong. It's not about what we lose, it's about what we gain. We, we gain Christ, the life of Christ inside of us. We gain the Holy Spirit that helps us and enables us to say no to sin. And so we gain much, but, but we, 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 we are still sinners. And the Bible never diminishes this, the reality, the weight of sin. And we can't either. We, 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 we can never shrug it off or wink at it or just kind of coddle it and think it's okay. No, the Bible's clear on the severity of sin. Every sin is treason, high treason against the majesty of our king. Every sin is a horrible offense to our holy God. And and we are all thoroughly sinful sinners. 
We are saints and we are sinners. But this is the great news for us, brothers and sisters. For the believer, the stain of our sin has been washed away. Not, not by water, but by the blood of Christ. That's the good news of the gospel for us. We've been washed and we've been covered. We've been, we've been clothed in the righteousness of another, of Jesus Christ. And so when God sees us now, He sees Christ's perfect righteousness. And He treats us accordingly. So He doesn't treat us according to our sin, but that doesn't minimize the presence and the power of sin in our lives. And so Martin Luther... Again, he, it, writing on this account in Genesis chapter 9, he, he wrote that this story is recorded for us, uh, recorded because God wanted those, quote, who know their weakness and for this reason are disheartened. Is that, it? Is that you today? Do you, are you coming today? You're aware of your weakness and your sin. You see it and you're disheartened. It's for those who, who, who are aware of their weakness, they, they're disheartened, to take comfort. First, in the offense that comes from the, the account of the lapses among the holiest and more perfect patriarchs. That's part of it. Say, so, okay, there's no temptation but that which is common to man. So there's some comfort there, but there's a greater comfort. In stories like, stories of men like Drunk Noah, he goes on, we find sure proof of our own weakness and therefore bow down in humble confession not only to ask for forgiveness, but also to hope for it. And that hope's not like a wishful thinking, like, oh, I hope I get it. No, it's a settled hope for the believer. To hope for forgiveness is to be certain that in Christ, all is forgiven. It, all is well. I mean, this is why, in some way, we have to teach our children. Not a vacation Bible school. I'm not pushing for that. But we need to teach our children stories like this. And I know we do, but... We, we don't want them, to, them thinking that the Bible is about good people doing good things for God. But the Bible is about God in Christ reconciling sinners to Himself. Not counting our trespasses against us. And so brothers and sisters, we can, we can rest in Christ's righteousness. Don't, don't think you have to strive to earn or, or maintain God's approval. Christ has secured that for you. God is, God is good with you if you are in Christ. But also, don't, don't relax in your pursuit of holiness. The answer is not to minimize sin. From that place of rest in Christ, you strive to be holy. Strive to be holy. And don't think that you're immune from stumbling and falling like this. Paul points to these Old Testament examples, particularly Israel in the wilderness and their they're stumbling and falling in the idolatry of heart. And he says, but, but church, whoever thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. So there's a, there's a warning for us in this. And so the picture of Noah is a, is a warning for us. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't make it on his own. He's flawed. He's, he needs help from beyond himself. He needed grace to help him stand strong against, against temptations he was facing. And so do you and I, brothers and sisters. So do you and I. Even the good gifts like, uh, in this case, wine and sexuality, they can be perverted and used for evil in our sinfulness. So we need God's help to, to use things for His glory. Even when no one's looking, when you're alone in the house, when you're alone in your room, when temptation is strong to use God's good gifts for evil, 
God's gifts like technology and other things, we call upon the Lord for grace to help in that time of need. And he is faithful to provide it. So there's this stain. Again, uh, again the, 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 the gaps are being filled in for those first hearers of this is why things are so bad. The stain of sin, it, it survived the flood. What could possibly wash away this stain then? And so they're left wanting, they're waiting, they're hoping. Noah, we're going to see his name means rest. And so they thought, well, maybe he's the one. He's the one that has provided it. No, they're still looking for a greater rest giver. So that brings us to the second word that I think kind of comes to the top. And it's struggle. Struggle. And so the struggle between the, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman that started back in Genesis 3.15, it, it, it goes on in verses 22 to 27. So Genesis 3.15, again, this is God's curse upon the serpent. This is the, that first gospel promise that we find in Scripture. And God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so one commentator said, very simply, Noah's sons carry on both the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So both seeds are preserved through the flood. And so the struggle between them goes on, and that's evidenced very clearly in these verses. And so the story gets, it goes from bad to worse here. We have Noah's drunkenness and passed out naked in his tent. And now to add insult to injury, Noah's son, Ham, walks into his tent, uninvited, sees Noah in that condition, exposed. Then he takes some measure of delight in what he sees. And he runs out and tells his older brothers, and he has this posture of mockery towards his father's sin. And this little, this little obscure event in this kind of uh, hidden, hidden dark corner of the Old Testament it becomes the setting for a prophetic announcement that's going to change the course of human history. It's behind the spread of the peoples and the nations and the languages around the globe. It, it is the backstory. Uh, it is the, one of the key events in the uh, surrounding the Tower of Babel that we're going to be looking at a vacation Bible school. And so if you're going to be a VBS this week, this is like the bonus features portion of the, the the dvd or something like that and so this is important to the story and so you'll know about drunk naked noah uh others may not there's been all kinds of spe- speculation about the exact nature of ham's sin here and i am not going to survey all of the different um views that are out there i've looked at them i've i i, I know the strengths and weaknesses of them but uh, but i'll tell you some of them are quite sordid and and heinous, and not something we could really... There's perverted. And so let me just get to the core issue, I think, of what is going on here. At the very least, we can say that Ham disrespected and dishonored his father. When his father was in, an, in a, this compromised position, Ham, Ham took this... Um, he, he took the mockery of his dad. He delighted in his father's shameful, disgraceful... Um, condition and so what he, he could have peeked in the tent he could have kind of sized up the situation he could have quickly covered his father up left said nothing about it to anyone but instead what does he do he seems to have enjoyed the sight of his dad naked and drunken 
in his tent and he goes to his brothers and spreads his father's disgrace to others. Why? Why does he do this? Well, we're not told his motives. I mean, I think we could, can kind of think of possible motives. Maybe he was waiting, wanting his dad to mess up so that he could justify himself in his own actions. Maybe he was a drunkard. Maybe he, there was some perverted sexuality in, in Ham's life. Maybe that was it. Maybe this is about revenge. Maybe his dad slighted him or something, and this is, this is to, he wanted to disgrace his dad. But regardless of the motive of Ham's heart, he, he finds enjoyment in the sin of his father. He enjoys seeing his dad in this dark light. This is happening before God gave the law to Moses, before we have the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. But, but he knows this is wrong, this is, because this is woven into the created or this is, this is written in his conscience. And, and so what you see here in, in Ham is it's the exact opposite of the way things are supposed to be, of a loving, serving uh, honoring relationship with his father. And so, this is, this is a warning to us. I mean, don't, 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 the, the importance of honoring and respecting your parents, just children, you say that to you, don't, I don't want to slide by this, I think this is the main point, but, I, but see this, this is God's good, good instruction to you. It's meant for your good, it's meant for good in your family and in society. But, so this is Ham. Then look at his brothers, and what a different response. So there's a lot of detail that Moses gives us here, isn't it? It's interesting. Verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both of their shoulders, and so you can picture the scene, and walked backward, covering and covered the nakedness of their father. And he's very explicit. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, you may read that and you think, okay, that sounds a little extreme. (laughs) just, just cover him up. It's fine. Walk in. I'm, I mean, uh, this is a little prudish or something like that. Just, just cover them. But they are doing everything they can to cover, to honor their father. And they're covering him up. They're covering his shame, covering his disgrace, protecting his honor while they're maintaining their own. And they refuse to further disgrace their dad. Now, what's going on here? What is this? What is this? What's happening? Essentially, we could say they're imitating God. They're imitating God. You think about this scene, and then think back a few chapters to where we were, where we were earlier in Genesis. And so, Adam, remember, he sins, sins by consuming fruit. How does Noah sin? Consuming fruit, drinking it. And so, when Adam and Eve sin, what happens? They immediately realize they are naked. And they're filled with shame because of that, 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 um, that awareness of their nakedness now. So what does God do as an act of grace towards them? He gets an animal skin, which means he kills an animal, and he clothes them with that skin. He covers them. They, they try to clothe themselves, you remember, with fig leaves. God says, that's not going to be enough. I will, I will clothe you. I will drape you. And close. And so this, and this is foreshadowing what God has done for us in Christ. Our only hope of standing before God and, 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 and living is to be covered, covered in the righteousness of Christ, washed by his blood. And so, but this is, this is the brothers. This is what they're, they're imitating. This is a, a God-like thing to do, covering their dad's sin and disgrace. 
But what I want you to see is we, we see these two lines. We see this, this friction in this family between a father and a son and between, and between these brothers. There are these two seeds. There's a struggle that started in Genesis 3.15 and it's going on here. There's lines, there's distinct lines. I mean, it's, we see them at odds with one another between, the, between these brothers and now it's going to become clearer in Noah's pronouncements. And so Noah wakes up from his drunk, drunken stupor He's probably ashamed of what he's done, but that's not all. Text says, verse 24, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. Not sure how he knew. Maybe he just inquired of his other sons. I don't know. But then he said, verse 25, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. These are the only, only recorded words of Noah in all scripture. You know, we've been looking at Noah for chapters now. And he's not said anything for what's recorded. I don't mean he was mute. But he, he didn't, he, nothing's recorded. But this is the first time and only time we see him, his words recorded for us. And so what's going on? Let me just say what it's not. This is not Noah flying off the handle in this angry outburst at Ham. Um, this kind of knee-jerk reaction of anger. Not how, not how sometimes maybe we as parents, you know, we, something happens, we don't like it, and we, you know, uh, throw something down and scream across the house or something like that. That's not, that's not what this is. So don't try to curse your children and think you're going to affect them generationally or something like that. Um, this isn't Noah pronouncing some kind of magical incantation like he, he can, he's got this, you know, like these witch powers or something and he can direct history by just saying like he's putting a hex on someone or something like that. That's not what this is. No, Noah, what's happening is Noah, who is a saint and a sinner, he is speaking prophetically. He's speaking prophetically. He's a mouthpiece for God here. It's not that Noah has the power at all in and of himself to, to say things over these boys that are going to come true. These are prophecies from God. And, and the first we see is this message of doom. He says, what, cursed be Ham? No, that's what we expect. I mean, Ham's the one who's disgraced him. Ham's the one who spread that to his brothers. And so we expect to say, Ham, you're cursed. But what does he say instead? It's cursed be Canaan. Canaan? Who's Canaan? Well, we've already seen, and we've seen uh, that he's the he's the son of of Ham, and that was twice in chapter nine already. We've seen this, where the writer explicitly says this, he's the fourthborn son of Ham. And so, what's this pronouncement? We'll get to that in a moment. What is the pronouncement? Three times, Canaan, you're going to be a slave. Your people are going to be slaves. You're, and, and those who come from, they're going to be a servant of servants, the lowest rung of the ladder. Now, this is. The real question for us, why? Why Canaan? When Ham sins, why is why does Noah curse his grandson? Canaan. Doesn't that seem a little harsh? A little unfair? I mean, what has the boy done? Leave the boy alone. But again, as you pay attention to the story, two times Moses has connected Ham to Canaan. He's, he's the only grandson of Noah that's been mentioned so far. And the connection between Canaan and Ham, and it's more than just Canaan and Ham, is, is more, just, more than just lineage. It's in essence. It's in character. It's in sin. 
So the Canaanites, they're, they're, they're going to be the most morally, uh, one of the most morally depraved peoples in the history of humanity. Certainly they were at their time. Canaanite religion included child sacrifice, uh, gross idolatry, all kinds of sexual rituals, um, religious prostitution, uh, divination, just on and on and on. You get into Leviticus chapter 18 and and it's describing some of the degenerate practices of the Canaanites that the Israelites were not to emulate. And there's this long list, and it's, and it's sort of, it, it's cleaned up. And so there are all these euphemisms that are in Leviticus 18, but they're all describing this gross perversion of the Canaanites. 24 times in Leviticus 18, the word nakedness is used. You could just give you a sense of, of this culture this, that would come from Canaan. And so as God enables Noah to sort of look down the corridors of time and, and look into the future, he sees this wickedness and depravity of the Canaanites, and that seed was already in him, no doubt, and he makes this pronouncement concerning Canaan and those who would come from him. And Ham's son is going to be cursed, and so it does affect Ham directly as well. Now, again, think about the original hearers of Genesis 9. Moses is delivering this message to people. They're going to be entering into the promised land. They're going to have to, what are they going to have to do? As they come in, they're going to have to drive out its inhabitants. And who are those inhabitants? Canaanites. Canaanites. This is, the promised land is Canaan. And so Moses wants them to know what they're going into and where all of this originates. And so Moses is rooting his people in their story here. This is why this is recorded for us, for them. They, they probably had all kinds of doubts swirling in their minds and their thoughts as they were anticipating going into the promised land and what God had told them to do. Did God really promise this land to us? I mean, there's giants in this land. Is this really, has He really promised us? Can we really defeat these people? And do we really have to wipe them out? Is that really necessary? And so God's laying out this backstory for them and for us. And in so doing, He's urging them and He's urging us to trust Him. To believe His promises. To believe what He said. Now, there's just a side note. And I, I probably don't even need to say this. I hope I don't need to say this. I hope nobody here has been exposed to this twisted and evil teaching and and, uh, and certainly bought into it. But this passage has been used throughout history at different times, and particularly among Southern theologians back in the Civil War era to justify slavery of Africans and the slave trade. And so they recognized that many of the Hamitic people, uh, people from Ham's line, they, they largely settled across uh, parts of the continent of Africa. And, and so they saw this curse as as justifying the enslavement of Africans. And this is their place. That is evil idiocy. <laughs> um, that is utter nonsense. It doesn't hold up in any way biblically. There, for one, the pronouncement is not upon people who settled in Africa. The pronouncement is upon people who settled in what we call modern-day Israel today. It's the Canaanites. It wasn't Hamites in general. It was Canaan. And, and, so, and historians, historians agree that Canaanites died out long ago. And so that's just craziness. But anyway, I just want to mention that because you might come across some mention of that in, in some article. I hope it's not in a favorable light if you're reading articles like that. But um, 
So this is one side, this, this message of doom for Canaan. And the other side is this pronouncement of blessing. He, he, and he knows, he doesn't actually bless Shem, he, but he blesses the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He blesses Yahweh, the God of Shem. And he entreats then to, with Japheth, God, God to enlarge Japheth. So by doing this, what is Moses doing? He's subordinating the human actors to the divine actor. And we're going to see this very clearly next week. This will be a, a big focus. That Everything that's happening in the spreading of nations, God is doing this. He is sovereign over peoples and the movement of peoples. And so, But this is what I want to see. From Adam, the seed of the woman came through Seth. And that seed was preserved through Shem. And from Shem would eventually come Abraham or Abram. And through Abram, Yahweh will establish his people in a special covenant relationship with himself. And eventually, through that line, will come the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And so this is, this is recorded for us so that we can see this struggle is going on. And, and that's part of it. But what, what the encouragement for God's people is that God's grace is always triumphing over Satan's attempts to thwart his plan. He is, he is preserving this line. And so the, the picture of Genesis 9, it can be pretty dismal and it can be sort of depressing apart from God's triumphant grace. But he is, he is keeping and He is faithful and He is fulfilling His plan. He's, he's keeping His promises. And what an important reminder to Israel and to us, even when it seems, it seems like things are coming off the rails. It is not. God is in charge and His grace is triumphant. And He's moving history forward and, and according to his purpose all right last last movement and this is from chapter 10 and don't worry i'm not going to read through the list of names again Whew, that's a, like more for me than for you but um and so scattering as noah dies you have nations that are born so there's this juxtaposition noah's death and then in chapter 10 the birth of all of these nations as noah dies nations are born and peoples are scattered and so look at verse 28, 29 of chapter 9. We see Noah's obituary. It's the, same, it's the same thing we read over and over and over in Genesis chapter 5. So remember that was another genealogy there. And so-and-so and so-and-so gave birth and lived so many years and he died. And, and so it's almost as if there, there's been this long parenthesis between Genesis 6 and, and most of Genesis 9. So like four chapters uh, this long parenthesis but it, it, that, that is what? It's the account of Noah's life. And so it, you, could, you could read chapter 5 and go right into verse 28 and 29 and you, you, you wouldn't even realize that. But verse 28, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Now again, remember what Noah's daddy named him. He named him Noah, well you know what he was named. But you remember what it means. It means rest. Rest. Out of the ground, Genesis 5.29, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This is what his father said as he named him. And so Noah, he, he is used by God to bring some measure of temporal rest and relief through his obedience and through the ark and the deliverance that God provides in this new creation. And so God is accomplishing His plan and His purpose through Noah. God is preserving His promise to His people through Noah. 
But part of the curse in Genesis 3 is that all people would die because of sin. And God kept His word. Noah sinned and Noah, Noah died. And so he's, again, saint and sinner. He, 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 this, his testimony is that, hey, I've seen the works of God. And I, with my own eyes, I've found the grace of God. I've known His salvation. My faith is rooted in God. But I'm also aware, like John Newton said, I am aware that I'm a great sinner. But God is a great Savior. And this is, this is what he's aware of. And so Noah dies, and he dies by faith, and he enters the rest that awaited him. Hebrews 11 tells us. But what we're, we're left waiting. We're left wanting. Huh. There's got to be, got to be a better, a better Noah. There's got to be a better rest giver. As the stain of sin goes on, the struggle goes on, and the story of God does go on. And so Genesis 10, it might seem a little confusing to you, all these strange names that are hard to pronounce. It's often called the table of nations. Because what we have here is we, we have this record of how the earth was repopulated after, after the flood from these three sons of Noah and how peoples spread out. And so you saw that detail that's given. And, and, but you could, even, you could even say it this. It's, it's sort of explaining to Israel the origin of all of their enemies. Where they came from. I mean, if you're an Israelite living in 1400 BC, I know we read these names like, what in the world is that? What is that? Where are those people and who are those people? But as, as those Israelites are hearing this for the first time, they'd be mentally checking off names left and right in their brain. Saying, yep, 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 I know them, I know them. All of these enemies that surrounded them. All of these peoples that want to kill them and hate them and want them destroyed. This is, this is the, the, and of course the fiercest enemies came from Canaan himself. And all of those ites that came out of Canaan. Beware the ites in, in the Bible. But this, this, this list, it meant, it meant a lot to them. It explained where they came from and how they fit into the world. And again, it explains that for us as well. And so just a couple of quick summary comments. We're not, again, going to look at it in great detail again. But one, it's, you notice it's not the genealogy like we saw in Genesis 5. It's not a list of names. There are names, but there are also there, there are people and there are people groups listed. Clans, languages, lands, and nations text says. And so in other words, it's a genealogy, and it's an atlas, and it's a history book all in one. And so it's, it's, it's doing a lot for us. It's, we're watching the movements of people and nations in the ancient world. Secondly, the listing isn't complete. I mean, you read through that list and you think, whoa, there's, there's important nations in biblical history that aren't even mentioned. Moab, and Ammon, and uh, Edom, for instance. And so there, there are 70 nations in the list. And, and that, that is this representative number. 70 is that number of completeness in Scripture. And so it's, it's just saying the whole... It, it's, it, these nations are representative of the fact that God is sovereign over all the nations. We'll come back to that in a moment. And then third, it's difficult, really impossible, to identify some of these nations and give them you know, modern names. Uh, we don't know where all of these people. We know several of them, many of them, and who they were and their history. Others, you know, over the centuries, people groups uh, changed names, moved to different locations, modify their language, mixed with other cultures, and so some of these we just don't know. But you see the structure. He starts with Japheth, who is sort of the the least importance in terms of the flow of the narrative in Genesis, and so the least is said about him. But Japheth's uh, descendants are kind of the outer edges of 
of civilization from the perspective of uh, those, those early uh, Jews. They're, they're, they're kind of the ones that go the farthest. Then he looks at the descendants of Ham. Of course, we've seen uh, Cain, Canaan already. But, and then there's this interesting little parenthesis about Nimrod, as we were reading through that earlier. Uh, he's kind of singled out and highlighted. And um, I just, if, you're, if, you've, if you've got a boy that's being born, don't name him Ham or Canaan or Nimrod. I'm just saying it's probably not a good idea, if you, in case you were tempted. Um, but Nimrod, he's singled out because he's, he's this powerful uh, leader in that world. He, he builds these powerful cities that have a, a significant, um, uh, they become significant em- enemies of Israel in their history. And so he's singled out. When he says that he's a, he's a mighty hunter before the Lord, I know some of you guys read that and you think, man, I want that on my tombstone, like engraved on there. That's awesome. Uh, that's not awesome. Uh, that's not like saying how skilled of he was at you know 400-yard shots or something like that. He's just saying that he was a vicious and ruthless killer. And, and God saw it. God saw his wickedness. This is not a positive statement. Um, and then and they get Shem. And so Shem is going to tie right into Genesis 11. And so that's why he's put last in this list. And so Shem, you hear, he, he's, he's the father of the Semites. The uh, Semites, so the Semitic peoples. Um, we, he, we have Shem to Eber. Eber is where we get our Hebrew. It's from Eber that would come Abraham, the Hebrew people. And so, again, we're seeing this connection. Now, one of the things we're going to see next week is, in a sense, Genesis 10 comes chronologically after Genesis 11. So Genesis 11 is going to explain how the nations got so dispersed that we see in Genesis 10. But, uh, so it, it's kind of, he's going to backfill and tell us what happened. But that's the sequence here. Now... What is the significance of this? Why does, it, why does it matter? Again, you think of those first hearers. What an, what an encouragement to, for the people of Israel when they entered Canaan. They, they, they entered Canaan, Canaan with this, this victory of faith in God's promises. God, God is doing what he said. But, but for all of us, even for us today, one of the things this communicates, and we'll talk more about this next time too, the Lord is God of all nations. He is, he is over all nations. God has established peoples and nations, ethno-linguistic uh, groupings of people, all of them. Acts 17, 26, Paul made the statement, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place. And so in spite of tyrants like Nimrod, and there was a, we were more familiar with Genghis Khan and Leopold II and and Adolf Hitler, in spite of all those, the Lord is God of the nations, geography and history. God's chosen nation, God's chosen nation was Israel. From Genesis uh, 11, 12 on, Israel's going to take center stage, Genesis 12 on. But God also used Egypt and Babylon and Assyria and Media, Persia and Rome to accomplish his purposes. God is, God is over the nations. Second thing that we... This is, I think, helpful for us. In spite of external appearances and differences, all nations belong to the same human family. That this, this is a blow to human pride. Um, the reason God chose Israel was not because they were better than the other nations. It's not because they were better stock. It was simply God's sovereign grace. 
God made us all, again, from one man, Acts 17, 26. We, we all go back to the same, same uh, source. We're all children of Noah, therefore we're all children of Adam. We all, we, our DNA all comes from the same place. We're, we're, there's this oneness to humanity. No, no people group can claim ethnic or racial superiority over another people group. And so while in God's providence, God has permitted some nations to, to make greater pros, uh, progress economically and politically and technologically and in other ways, maybe than other nations, that in, those achievements do not mean that those nations are better than others in terms of any kind of core value. Proverbs 22, 2 says, The rich and the poor, they meet together. The Lord is maker of them all. And so it's not a matter of of, of race, it's a matter of grace. That's, the, that's what, what matters. Third, God cares for all the nations. He cares. Frequently throughout the Psalms, you hear, you'll find the phrase, all the earth, all the nations, all the peoples. You get, it's like Psalm 67, for instance, and, and it expresses this universal vision that God has of all the nations of the earth coming to know and to serve Him. So God is, God is tracing in Genesis 10 here this spread of these people groups because they belong to Him and they matter to Him. Christ came to earth to die for the descendants of Gomar and, uh, Gomer and, and Ashkenaz and Mizraim and all of the rest of these names that we have trouble pronouncing. And when we get to the, what do you, we get to the end of the Bible and what's this one of the final scenes that we have of, of, of this of Believers in heaven gathered in praise of Jesus Christ. And what is it that they say? Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. I mean, the last thing the Lord Jesus said before he left this earth was what? All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. The nations are mine. God is, he's God of the nations. And what does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He's interested in the nations today as much as ever. And so they are on his heart. And to the extent that we understand and know him, they will be on, on, our, heart, on our heart as well. And even as we labor in the trenches of Vacation Bible School, this is, should be a compelling drive for us. Stain, struggle, scattering. All three of those things are pointing us to Christ. It's in Christ that the stain of sin will be removed, ultimately. By Him, what does He do to remove the stain? He takes the stain on for us. He removes it and bears it. Jesus, think about this. What does Jesus do? He sheds Canaanite blood on the cross. You understand that? We know that from Luke chapter 3, this another genealogy. He had Canaanite blood throwing, flowing through his veins when he died on the cross. Because his great, 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 great grandmother, I lost count, I lost track, Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. And so Christ and Christ alone, he, he alone has the power to deal with the stain of sin and, and, and he alone has the power to break the cycle of misery that that stain brings. And he's done it. It's in Christ also that the struggle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will end. And he'll crush the head. He has crushed the head of the serpent. And will one day deal finally with him 
and cast them away. And it's in Christ the scattered nations will be gathered to worship the Lamb around the throne. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are Lord of the nations, that you have established your throne, your sovereign rule is over all. We thank you for this glorious plan that you are accomplishing. We, and we pray that you would remind us that you have broken down those barriers, the, the geographic, the linguistic walls that separated us from your gospel and you have revealed your son to us. We, we stand uh, among those outer, outer bands of civilization that by your grace have, the gospel has come to us. And so we give you thanks and Father, we thank you that, that you are in fact God of, of all the earth. And we pray that as your people, we would have a heart to see uh, you, Lord Jesus, extend the scepter of your rule and your reign to the ends of the earth as the gospel goes out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.